Sanford, Florida, April 27, 1917. Dear Sir, I have seen through the Chicago Defender that you and the people of Chicago are helping newcomers. I am asking you for some information about conditions in some small town near Chicago. There are some families here thinking of moving up and are desirous of knowing what to expect before leaving. Please state about treatment, work, rent, and schools. Please answer at some spare time. Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Stevenson. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. Today's episode is the last of a three-part series on the Great Migration, during which millions of African Americans fled the Jim Crow South for other parts of the country. But many of the letters read in this series were sent to and from the city of Chicago, to which between 50 and 70,000 blacks moved between 1916 and 1919. Please be aware that some of the information at the end of this episode may be disturbing to younger or sensitive listeners. The N-word was also used in some of the letters and quotations. I've included a tone in those places because, as I've said before, it is important for us to hear when it was said, even if I do not say it myself. When we left off in Episode 2, migrants heading for Chicago had just crossed the Ohio River, or the River Styx, as the Chicago Defender newspaper called it. Their first sights might have been a sky grayed by factory emissions, or, if arriving at night, lit up by fiery smokestacks. If there was no one at the terminal to meet them, migrants were often completely lost and overwhelmed. The scene in 1916 and 1917, the period covered by this series, was probably very similar to what not-yet-jazz legend Louis Armstrong experienced when he arrived from New Orleans in 1922, looking for Mr. Joe. Armstrong described the scene thus, I saw a million people, but not Mr. Joe, and didn't give a damn who else was there. I never seen a city that big. All those tall buildings. I thought they were universities. I said, no, this is the wrong city. I was fixing to take the next train back home, standing there in my box-back suit, padded shoulders, double-breasted wide-leg pants. If the newcomer was the member of, say, the Alabama Club or the Tennessee Club, someone from their home state, who had already made the move, might meet him or her at the terminal. Some did arrive without friends who could help, and rumors of agencies on State Street providing homes and furniture, they discovered, had not been true. But agents from Traveler's Aid Societies did help direct migrants who had addresses of friends and relatives that they could stay with. Or they might have been met by representatives from the Chicago Urban League, established in 1916, which helped many migrants with housing and jobs in its first two years. The Urban League provided a, quote, certified lodging list of places to stay, which volunteers had personally inspected for their suitability. Ministers, lawyers, Physicians and social workers all joined forces and worked with churches and Sunday schools to locate housing for the many migrants. Single working men found rooms at the Wabash Avenue YMCA. Some men made the journey by freight train. When they arrived in Chicago, destitute, they could end up in a courtroom where the judge might refer them to the Urban League. 
women who arrived with few resources might be directed to the Phyllis Wheatley Home for Girls. The Phyllis Wheatley Club was founded in 1896 by Elizabeth Lindsay Davis, an organizer in the African-American club movement, a topic that I've come across many times in my research for this series, and one that I hope to learn more about for a future episode. The women of the Phyllis Wheatley Club started the home for migrant women out of concern that they were, quote, going astray by being led unawares into disreputable homes, entertainment, and employment. The home offered, quote, wholesome surroundings for colored girls and women who were strangers in the city and to house them until they found safe and comfortable quarters. The club women established nurseries and kindergartens and helped with jobs and, quote, wholesome recreation. The club women opened a YWCA chapter in 1915, and though it had very little living space, they created a directory of, quote, safe homes for new girls without families. The club also held fundraisers, including balls, dramas, dances, and a Halloween party with dinner and a contest for the most artistic and comical costumes. Indigent men and women were sometimes sent to the Walters African Methodist Episcopal, or AME, Zion Church, which was open day and night and welcome to newcomers. Many lodging houses in the city did not accept blacks, including the Salvation Army's Reliance Hotel, the YMCA Hotel, the Christian Industrial League, and the Dawes Hotel. But with a little money, migrants could go to the YMCA, the YWCA, the Club Home for Colored Girls, or the Julia Johnson Home for Working Girls. Black hotels like the Pullman were 50 cents to a dollar per day. City Smiths charged 15 to 20 cents per night. And by 1917, the Idlewild Hotel had steam heat and hot water for $4 per week and up. It didn't take long for housing to become a serious issue. Between 1916 and 1918, Chicago received about 500 migrants per day. The black population doubled between 1910 and 1920, but the housing available to them did not increase. In the summer of 1917, on a single day, there were 664 applicants for housing, but only 50 homes were supplied. Prior to the migration, black residents had been dispersed throughout the city in small clusters and not really noticed. As more blacks moved to the city, housing in many areas was closed to new black arrivals who were forced into ghettos. In the early 1910s, segregation ordinances were passed throughout the country, but the Supreme Court struck them down in 1917 in its Buchanan v. Worley decision, which said that municipally mandated racial zoning violated the Equal Protection Clause. But courts would eventually distinguish between public ordinances and private covenants. Housing covenants were agreements not to sell, rent, or lease property to minority groups, including Jews, Asians, Mexicans, or African Americans. The earliest appeared in 1892 against Chinese immigrants, and Chicago started using them in the 1920s. But violence was another way of keeping blacks out of certain neighborhoods. Between 1917 and 1921, there were 58 bombings in Chicago of black homeowners and agents who sold to black buyers. And so many blacks ended up in the hundreds of vacant and dilapidated houses near Chicago's Vice District. 
the South Side neighborhood known as the Black Belt and later Bronzeville, ran down State Street from 22nd to 51st Streets. When blacks moved in, rents increased between 5 and 30 percent and as much as 50 percent. Though landlords claimed that the rents were, quote, returning to former standards after the property had depreciated through the coming in of Negroes. The condition of the homes led to outsiders' complaints about the quality of the housing and accusations that blacks were anti-improvement. Even though the residents had nowhere else to live and landlords wouldn't fix the buildings or release the renters from their contracts. The buildings sometimes lacked heat, light, or running water. Residents had to make repairs on their own, which they often could not afford to do. But with few other options, they stayed. Black and white landlords divided four-room flats into four kitchenettes by installing a gas burner in each room and rented them to poor families by the week. Historian James Grossman argues that the housing was still better than what some had in the South, where migrants from towns or farms might have lived in a crude cabin of three or four rooms. This view was also expressed by Emma J. Scott, the highest-ranking African-American official in the Woodrow Wilson administration, who wrote a detailed report on the causes and the effects of the migration. One-third of the migrants lived in private dwellings as lodgers, an arrangement criticized by black and white observers as a threat to family morality. But it provided a way for men and women to earn an income while staying home and help newcomers adapt to the new city. Hosts sometimes felt obligated to help out in this way, even if they didn't need the money. The next letter writer addresses the housing situation and his own boarding of lodgers, among other things. Akron, Ohio, May 21st, 1917. Dear friend, I am well and hope you are well. I am getting along fine. I have not been sick since I left home. I have not lost but two and a half days. I work like a man. I am making good. I never liked a place like I do here, except home. There is no place like home. How is the church getting along? You can't hardly get a house to live in. I am wide awake on my financial plans. I've rented me a place for boarders. I have 15 sleepers. I began one week ago, and be sure to send my letter of dismission by return mail. I'm going into some kind of business here by the 1st of September. Are you farming? Rations are mighty high up here. The people are coming from the south every week. The colored people are making good. They are the best workers. I've made a great many white friends. The Baptist church is overcrowded with Baptists from Alabama and Georgia. Ten and twelve join every Sunday. He is planning to build a fine brick church. He takes up fifty and sixty dollars each Sunday. He's a well-to-do preacher. I'm going to send you a check for my salary in a few weeks. It cost me a hundred dollars to buy furniture. Write me. There's a word in the letter spelled R-A-I-S-O-N, which I'm not sure of, so I pronounced it rations. Chicago has been the main focus of the series, but as we discuss employment, I wanted to mention a few other towns. As I talked about in the first two episodes, migrants often sought employment before making the move. A portion of them had been recruited by labor agents. The labor agent makes another appearance in the town of Cairo, Illinois, 
just north of the confluence of the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. Companies in St. Louis, Missouri, sent labor agents to Cairo to meet the incoming trains and make job offers to the new arrivals. After a large steel plant in the city settled a strike with its largely foreign-born workforce, it began a policy of employing one black person for each white person so that the next strike would not cripple the industry. The Missouri Malleable Ironworks had a policy of dividing positions equally between native-born whites, foreign-born whites, and blacks, believing that the three groups would not unite in a strike. By the time Emmett Scott wrote his report, 80% of the workers in St. Louis brickyards were black. In packing houses and in the American Car and Foundry Company, 50% of the employees were black. Many African Americans were also employed by other foundries, as well as terracotta works, electrical plants, and railways. Just across the Mississippi River in East St. Louis, Illinois, Swift, Armour, Nelson, and Morris hired many blacks as well. In some departments of unskilled workers, 50% were African American. The aluminum ore works employed 600 black workers and 1,000 white workers. Many migrants also found work and housing in the town of Rockford, Illinois. About 1,000 settled there between 1916 and 1917. By 1919, the Rockford Malleable Iron Company had 100 black employees. 32 had been trained in machinery and molding at Tuskegee, an HBCU that I talked about in Episode 1. Letters about the great wages that migrants were earning proved to be a major pull factor enticing Southerners to move. The letters were sometimes read to large gatherings or circulated among many friends. They were read out loud in churches, barbershops, and meeting halls. As the next letter attests, new arrivals saw their income increase dramatically from what they'd been able to earn in the South. East Chicago, Indiana, June 10, 1917, to Union Springs, Alabama. Dear old friend, these moments I thought I would write you a few true facts of the present condition of the North. Certainly, I am trying to take a close observation. Now, it is true, the colored men are making good. Never pay less than $3 per day or 10 hours. This is not promised. I do not see how they pay such wages the way they work labors. They do not hurry or drive you. Remember, this is the very lowest wages. Piecework men can make from 6 to $8 per day. They receive their pay every two weeks. This city I am living in, the population is 30,000, 20 miles from big Chicago, Illinois. Doctor, I am somewhat impressed. My family also. They are doing nicely. I have no right to complain whatever. I received the papers you mailed me some few days ago, and you know I enjoyed reading about the news down in Dixie. I often think of so much of the conversation we engaged in concerning this part of the world. I wish many times that you could see our people up here, as they are entirely in a different light. I witnessed Decoration Day on May 30th. The line of the march was four miles. Eight brass bands. All business houses were closed. I tell you, the people here are patriotic. I enclosed you the cut of the white press. The chief of police dropped dead Friday. Buried him today. 
the procession was about three miles long. Over 400 automobiles in the parade. Five departments, police force, mayor and aldermen and secret societies. We are having some cold weather. We're still wearing overcoats. Let me know what my little city is doing. People are coming here every day and are finding employment. Nothing here but money and it is not hard to get. Remember me to your dear family. Oh, I have children in school every day with the white children. I will write you more next time. How is the lodge? Your friend. In northern factories and packing houses, the migrants could earn as much in a day as they'd received for a week's work back home. Men at the Wilson Packing House, for example, earned $3 per day. Lumber stackers could earn $4 per day, and railroad workers $125 per month. Proof of the wages was in the money that migrants often sent home to their families. Banks in the Deep South reported heavy deposits of drafts drawn on northern banks. The next letter accompanies a financial gift sent by an Ohio man to his former pastor. Dayton, Ohio, July 22, 1917. My dear pastor and wife, I read your letter, was glad to hear from you. I am doing fine. Hope the same for you. I'm sending you some money for my back salary. I will send you some more the 5th of September next month. Give love to all the members of the church. I'll be home on a visit in October, so pray for me. Write to me. I would have wrote to you, but I did not know just what to say. All of the people leave, go to places up east, that I did not know whether or not you care to hear from me. So I'm glad you think of me. Mr. O wrote to me, was going to take out life insurance with him, but he would not send me the paper, so I just let it go, as I guess he did not class me with himself. I'm making $70 a month at this hotel, and then not work hard. Some migrants achieved middle-class status, with better-paying jobs such as postal workers, Pullman porters, or servants in the wealthiest white families or in the best hotels. A very few made it to the black upper class as professionals and businessmen. Not only did the Urban League offer assistance with housing and employment, they also tried to instruct their southern brethren on proper behavior and lifestyle. Hundreds of club women visited homes offering, quote, messages emphasizing the necessity of being orderly citizens, efficient working men, and good housekeepers. There was practical advice, like how to avoid tuberculosis or reduce infant mortality. There were also suggestions to eat regularly and get fresh air and sunshine. To save money, the newcomers should, quote, eat vegetables and less meat. Eventually, there arose class, cultural, and age tensions between the so-called old settlers, those who arrived before 1910, and the newcomers, who were largely in their 20s and 30s. They stood out for their accent, their food, clothes. Many were young and did young things, like throwing loud parties and dressing in the latest fashions. They enjoyed the bright lights of nightlife. Langston Hughes wrote in 1918, quote, South, South State Street was in its glory then, a teeming Negro street with crowded theaters, restaurants, and cabarets. 
and excitement from noon to noon. Midnight was like day. The street was full of workers and gamblers, prostitutes and pimps, church folks and sinners. But there was the feeling that whites would judge the so-called misbehavior of the new country cousins in terms of the whole race and not just individuals. The old settlers expressed concern that many whites were starting to complain about the migration. And they imposed rules to, quote, disarm those who are trying to discredit our race. So the defender wrote, quote, we are our brother's keeper, whether we like it or not. It is our duty, if resolved to a selfish duty, to guide the hand of a less experienced one, especially when one misstep weakens our chance for climbing. The paper advised newcomers to refrain from loud conversations, boisterousness, vulgarity on streetcars and in public places, bad action and conduct are embarrassing, the paper said, and reflect not only upon the individual, but react upon the masses of the race. The old settlers didn't like the Southerners' boogie-woogie music and called their aprons and overalls, quote, marks of servitude, saying they shouldn't be worn downtown on streetcars or places of amusement. They were embarrassed by the street-side barbecue stands, watermelon, and head rags. Many newcomers dressed as they had been expected to in the South, where, quote, to travel to work in anything but work clothes could brand a black Southerner uppity. Prominent blacks wondered what to do with, quote, all of these Negroes from the South coming in here. They look terrible. They sit down on the streetcar beside the white people, and I am sure there is going to be trouble. Katherine Johnson, associate editor of Half Century Magazine, worried that the migrants would use their newfound liberty for license, which was a challenge for poor black and white women who worked long hours outside the home and didn't always have access to the plumbing enjoyed by their middle-class counterparts, who also had maids sometimes. In the fall of 1917, the Defender printed a list of do's and don'ts. They included, Don't be made a tool or strike-breaker for any corporation or firm. Do not loaf on the corner of 35th and State Streets and make insulting remarks about women. Avoid raucous laughing and talking. Send peddlers to the rear. Do not stick your head out the window, for this is a custom observed only in backwards towns of the South. Honor streetcar etiquette. Bathe and change clothes after work and before boarding a streetcar. Do not appear on the street with old dust caps, dirty aprons, or ragged clothes. But despite judgment from the old settlers, the newcomers made their mark. By 1919, two-thirds of the black-owned businesses in Chicago were owned by recent arrivals. They had opened the Florida East Coast Shine Parlor, the Carolina Sea Island Candy Store, Hattiesburg Shaving Parlor, the Southern Home Cooking Restaurant, and the Southern Lunchroom Restaurant. They made their mark and they had a good time. Companies like Armor, Morris, and Swift sponsored efficiency clubs at the Wabash Avenue YMCA, organized by the foreman. They organized social events like picnics, glee clubs, concerts, lectures, and athletic leagues. The next letter writer writes home about attending White Sox games. Chicago, Illinois. Dear partner, you received a few days ago, and I was glad to hear from you and know that you were well. How is old H. Berg and all of the boys? 
Say, partner, is it true that T.M. was shot by a Negro Monday? It is all over the city, among the people of Hburg. If so, let me know at once, so I'll tell the boys it's true. Well, so much for that. I wish you could have been here to those games. I saw them, and believe me, they were worth the money I paid to see them. T.S. and I went out to see the Sunday game, which was 7-2 White Sox, and I saw Saturday's game, 2-1 White Sox. Write that he will never see nothing as long as he stays down there behind the sun. There's something up here to see all the time. Tell old E.B. to go to H. Tell B. doesn't have to answer my cards. How's friend Wilson? Wrote him a letter in August. Tell him that, all right, I'll see him in the funny paper. Well, partner, I guess you hear a many funny thing about Chicago. Half you hear is not true. I know B.C. has told many a lie. Whenever you hear see them, party, tell them to write to this address. Say, party, old H. is mopping up in his barber shop. Guess I will come to you, boy Christmas. I must go to bed. Just in from a hard day's work. Your lifelong friend. As I mentioned briefly at the beginning, along with the Urban League and Chicago Defender, the African-American church played a role in helping newcomers get settled in their new city. Churches had advertised on the Defender, saying, quote, newcomers are welcome, and quote, everyone is welcome and made to feel at home. Chicago's Bethlehem Baptist Association, headquartered at Olivet Baptist Church, advertised in the Defender that it would help find housing and employment for new for newcomers. Quite a few letter writers referred to their religious affiliation in their inquiries, like the next one. Memphis, Tennessee, May 22, 1917. Sir, as you will see from the above that I am working in an office somewhat similar to the one I am addressing, but that is not the purpose with which I sat out to write. What I would like best to know is can you secure me a position there? I will not say that I am capable of doing any kind of labor, as I am not. Have had an accidental injury to my right foot, hence am incapable of running up and down stairs, but can go up and down by taking my time. I can perform janitor's duties, 10 bar or grocery store, as a clerk. I am also a graduate of the law department, Howard University, Washington, D.C., class of 85, but this fact has not swelled my head. I am willing to do almost anything that I can that there is a dollar to it. I am a man of 63 years of age, lived here all my life, barring five or six years spent in Washington and the East. am a Christian, Baptist by affiliation. have been a teacher, clerk in the government department, law and pension offices for five years, also a watchman in the war department, also collector and rental agent for the late railroad, church esquire, member of Canaan Baptist Church, Covington, Tennessee. Now, this is the indictment I plead to. Sir, if you can place me, I will be willing to pay anything in reason for the service. I have selected a place to stop with a friend of earlier days at, redacted, whenever I can get placed there. An early reply will be appreciated by yours respectfully. Old Line AME and Baptist churches grew dramatically with the influx of Southern worshipers. Membership at Olivet, 
doubled between 1916 and 1919 to 8,500 members, making it the largest Protestant church in North America. Walter's AME Zion tripled its membership in three years, with 350 newcomers by 1919. But cultural differences were a source of conflict in the churches as well. Some had come from towns and rural areas where the minister passed through one to two times per month to preach in a crude building, and they were impressed with Chicago's institutions, as was the letter writer that we heard from Akron, Ohio. Other new arrivals reported feeling uncomfortable with the sizes of the congregations and their styles of worship. There was a feeling that some of the churches were too big for the pastor to get to know you or for anyone to notice if you didn't come to church one Sunday. They were accustomed to more improvisational singing, shouting, active participation, and demonstrative enthusiasm than was typical in some older Chicago churches. Reverend William Braden of Berean Baptist was known for more intellectual sermons. He didn't hold revivals, and he prohibited standing during the service. Some migrants found Chicago sermons somber and uninspiring. One church visitor reported that one church visitor reported that he or she quote, couldn't understand the pastor and the word he used. Another quote, couldn't sing their way. The songs were proud like. Walter's AME Zion was more free with its worship, but Reverend W. A. Blackwell considered quote, singing, shouting, and talking to be the most useless ways of proving Christianity. So migrants often started at a big church, got assistance, met new people, and then left for a more intimate congregation. New arrivals found a level of choice in worship that they had not had in the South, and some referred to them as church tramps for moving from church to church. They either moved to a different church that was already established, or they started their own storefront churches congregations that met in previously commercial properties as opposed to a traditional church building. They were in the holiness and Pentecostal denominations, with more animated church services than the traditional Chicago denominations. By 1919, there were more than 100 storefront churches in Chicago. Some congregations had worshipped together in the South and came with their pastor or sent for him after they settled, or they reconstituted under a new minister. The South Park Methodist Episcopal was a large church that had been organized by 50 former residents of Mississippi before the migration. It had 2,500 members by 1919. My favorite letter in the series was from a woman who describes her positive experiences in Chicago, including her new church. Chicago, Illinois. My dear sister, I was agreeably surprised to hear from you and to hear from home. I am well and thankful to say I am doing well. The weather and everything else was a surprise to me when I came. I got here in time to attend one of the greatest revivals in the history of my life. Over 500 people joined the church. We had a Holy Ghost shower. You know I like to run wild. It was snowing some nights, and if you didn't hurry, you could not get standing room. Please remember me kindly to any who ask of me. The people are rushing here by the thousands. And I know if you come and rent a big house, you can get all the rumors you want. 
You write me exactly when you are coming. I am not keeping house yet. I am living with my brother and his wife. My son is in California, but will be home soon. He spends his winter in California. I can get a nice place for you to stop until you can look around and see what you want. I am quite busy. I work in Swift's packing company in the sausage department. My daughter and I work for the same company. We get $1.50 a day, and we pack so many sausages we don't have much time to play. But it is a matter of a dollar with me, and I feel that God made the path and I am walking therein. Tell your husband work is plentiful here, and he won't have to loaf if he wants to work. I know unless old man A changed, it was awful with his soul, and G also. Well, I'm always glad to hear from my friends, and if I can do anything to assist any of them to better their condition. Please remember me to Mr. C and his family. I will write them all as soon as I can. Well, I guess I've said about enough. I will be delighted to look into your face once more in life. Pray for me as I am heaven-bound. I have made too many rounds to slip now. I know you will pray, for prayer is the life of any sensible man or woman. Well, goodbye from your sister in Christ. P.S. My brother moved the week after I came. When you fully decide to come, write me and let me know what day you expect to leave and over what road. And if I don't meet you, I will have someone there to meet you and look after you. I will send you a paper as soon as one comes along. They send out extras two and three times a day. There were, of course, there always are, challenges and negative experiences for the migrants as well. Poorer women worked as servants and were gone from their homes and families for as long as 14 hours per day. Children were left in the care of an older sibling or lodger because they couldn't afford a nursery or kindergarten. The nursing job that a young woman had come for, if there was any job at all, was in some cases actually a domestic servant job. And even though the newcomers were earning more than they had in the South, the cost of living was higher. They were willing to work for less than the going rate because the pay was so much higher than they'd been used to, which naturally caused resentment among white workers. For example, unskilled foundry workers had earned $2.50 per 10-hour day in Alabama but the pay rate for the same job was $4.25 in Illinois. And despite the great experience in Rockford, blacks were often recruited for the lowest level jobs with the lowest pay. Elevator operators, chauffeurs, waiters, common laborers, despite in some cases having degrees from Hampton, Tuskegee, and other industrial southern schools. They may have been skilled shoemakers, tailors, or carpenters, but the division of labor in northern factories required the men to relearn or abandon their trade and work in unskilled labor. A variety of low-paying jobs included muckers, tannery laborers, street construction workers, dockhands, and janitors. In 1919, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that the weekly wage in Minneapolis to maintain a standard of living should be $43.51 for a family of five. Out of 222 married men surveyed, only 12 of them were making over $40 an hour, over $40 a week. 200 made between $15 and $30 a week, and the median was $22.55.
about half of the standard. We heard from new arrivals who found their new jobs comparatively easy, but that was not the case in all industries. A migrant in Detroit, working for the automaker Graham Page, said, quote, Many workers would pass out. The boys would say, the bear has got you. When we got real hot, we'd see little dots in front of us. We worked on a swing shift. We'd get through after, con- we'd get through after a continual half-running pace all day, 15 minutes before the whistle. If we sat down, we often caught the cramps in our legs and all over. We couldn't move. Sometimes we had to wait 15 or 30 minutes before we could get up and go home. The long hours of work and poor ventilation and the unhealthy living conditions at home made the migrants susceptible to infectious disease. They also had poor access to medical care. Hospitals were segregated, and there were few black physicians in hospitals. The death rate was higher for blacks than whites, and the infant mortality rate double. It was even worse in the summer. One quarter of black children died before their first birthday. Moral or spiritual health was also an issue. Ida B. Wells said that, quote, not a single uplifting influence competed with the saloons, pool rooms, and cabarets on State Street. In the 1910s, the three wards housing over half of the African Americans had over 1,100 licensed saloons. The second ward had a quarter of the African Americans and one saloon for every 290 people. By contrast, the sixth ward, which contained the wealthy Hyde Park and Kentwood neighborhoods, had one saloon for 1,806 people. The next letter touches on the many issues that northern migrants experienced. It's from Pennsylvania and addresses housing, the cost of living, and worship options. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, May 11, 1917. My dear pastor and wife, it affords me great pleasure to write you. This leaves me well and okay. I hope you and Sister Hayes are well, and know you think I have forgotten you all, but I never will. How is everybody, and how is the church getting along? Well, I'm in this great city, and you know it's cool here right now. The trees are just peeping out. Fruit trees are now in full bloom, but it's cool yet. We sat by the big fire overnight. I like the money okay, but I like the South better for my pleasure. This city is too fast for me. They give you big money for what you do, but they charge you big things for what you get. And the people are coming by carloads every day. It's just packed out. The people are begging for somewhere to stay. If you have a family of children and come here, you can buy a house easier than you can rent one. If you rent one, you have to sign up for six months or 12 months. So so you see, if you don't like it, you have to stay. You know they pass that law because the people move about so much. I'm at a real nice place and stay right in the house of a reverend and family. His wife is a state worker, I mean a missionary. She is some class, owns plenty of real estate and personal property. They have a four-story home on the mountain, piano in the parlor, organ in the sewing room. One daughter and two sons. But you know I have to pay $2 per week just to sleep and pay it in advance, and get meals where I work. So I think I shall get me a place where I work next week. 
The lady said she would rather we stay in the house with them and give me a room upstairs than to pay so much for sleeping. So she pays me $8 per week to feed. Now she says she'll ruin me so if I don't take that offer, I can't say very much. I go to church sometimes. Plenty of churches in this place. All kinds. They have some real colored churches. I have been on the I have been on the Allegheny Mountains twice. Seems like I was on Bale's Tower. Listen, Hayes, I'm here and I'm going to stay until fall if I don't get sick. It's the largest city I ever saw. Forty-five miles long and equal in breadth, and a smoky city. So many mines of all kinds. Some places look like torment, or how they say it looks. And some places look like paradise in this great city. Some places look like torment, or how they say it looks. And some places look like paradise in this great city. My sister-in-law goes too far. I stop here. I will visit her this summer if I get a pass. I can't spend no more money going further from home. I'm twenty-six miles from my son. Be sweet. Excuse me for writing on both sides. I have so much to say. I want to save every line with a word, and that isn't the half. But I've told you the real facts. What I have said, I keep well. So far, I am praying to continue, and I hope you and your dear sweet wife will pray for me and all of my sisters and brothers, and give Mrs. C my love and Sister Jenny and all, and accept a barrelful for you and Hayes. Please send me a letter of recommendation. Tell Doctor to sign and Mr. Oliver. I remain your friend. Of course, in addition to economic opportunity, a major factor in the Exodus was the quest for racial equality, or at least racial peace. In some ways, the North lived up to the dream on this front, and for some migrants, it was almost too good to be true. There weren't signs saying "whites only" or "colored water fountain." In stores, they would ask, "Can a colored man buy this or that here?" As more blacks moved into Rockford, Illinois, which I talked about a little bit ago. Discrimination did crop up in public places, but the mayor called a conference of business and public places to read the civil rights law to them. Some businesses wanted to have separate tables in restaurants, but the mayor forbade it, and the Rockford chief of police ordered the removal of a sign that said "We do not cater to color trade." Then sent his deputy to make sure it didn't come back up. The next two letter writers are happy not only with the wages they receive. But also the respect they receive. Hattiesburg, Mississippi, November thirteen, nineteen seventeen. Dear M, yours received some time ago, and found all well and doing well. Hope you and family are well. I got my things all right the other day, and they were in good condition. I'm all fixed now and living well. I certainly appreciate what you've done for us, and I will remember you in the near future. M, old boy, I was promoted on the first of the month. I was made first assistant to the head carpenter. When he is out of the place, I take everything in charge, and was raised to ninety-five dollars a month. You know I know my stuff. What's the news generally around Hburg? I should have been here twenty years ago. I just begin to feel like a man. It's a great deal of pleasure in knowing that you have got some privilege. My children are going to the same school with the whites. And I don't have to umble to no one. I have registered. We'll vote the next election, and there isn't any yes sir and no sir. 
It's all yes and no, Sam and Bill. Florine says hello and would like very much to see you. All join me in sending love to you and family. How are times there now? Answer soon from your friend and bro. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, October 7, 1917. Dear Sir, I take this moment of thanking you for your early responding and the glorious effect of the treatment. Oh, I do feel so fine. Doctor, the treatment reached me almost ready to move. I am now housekeeping again. I like it so much better than rooming. Well, doctor, with the aid of God, I am making very good. I make $75 per month. I'm carrying enough insurance to pay me $20 per week if I am not able to be on duty. I don't have to work hard. Don't have to mister every little white boy comes along. I haven't heard a white man call a color to... You know now, since I've been in the state of Pennsylvania. I can ride the electric street and steam cars anywhere I get a seat. I don't care to mix with the white. What I mean is, I'm not crazy about being with white folks. But if I have to pay the same fare, I have learned to want the same accommodation. And if you are first in a place here shopping, you don't have to wait until the white folks get through trading. Yet amid all of this, I shall ever love the good old South, and I am praying that God may give every well-wisher a chance to be a man, regardless of his color. And if my going to the front would bring about such conditions, I am ready any day. Well, doctor, I don't want to worry you, but read between the lines. And maybe you can see a little sense in my weak statement. The kids are in school every day. I have only two, and I guess that is all. Doctor, when you find time, I would be delighted to have a word from the good old home state. Wife joins me in sending love you and yours. I am your friend and patient. Richard Wright wrote, It was strange to pause before a crowded newsstand and buy a newspaper without having to wait until a white man was served. And yet, because everything was so new, I began to grow tense again, although it was a different tension than I had known before. I knew that this machine city was governed by strange laws and wondered if I would ever learn them. Hughes and others learned the rules soon enough. He learned, for example, that Wentworth Avenue was the eastern boundary of the Irish neighborhood. He made the mistake of crossing it one Sunday and was beat up by a group of boys who let him know that he was in the wrong place. Chicago papers eventually complained of the, quote, infestation of darkies. One headline said, Half a million darkies from Dixie swarmed to the north to better themselves. Eventually, there would be violent conflict, which brings us back to East St. Louis, Illinois, in the summer of 1917. The Aluminum Ore Company and others had hired non-unionized blacks to replace striking white workers. Blacks had been discouraged or barred from joining unions. One union member said, quote, Immigration of the Southern Negro into our city for the past eight months has reached a point where drastic action must be taken, and he demanded that the city, quote, retard this growing menace and devise a way to get rid of a certain portion of those who are already here. On the night of July 1st, a carload of whites fired shots into African-American homes. The black residents fired back when a second car came by, unwittingly killing two plainclothes policemen in an unmarked car. By July 2nd, there was full-scale rioting. Blacks were, quote, stabbed, clubbed, and hanged from telephone poles. 
One two-year-old was shot and thrown in the doorway of a burning building. The police and National Guard were called in, but sometimes joined in the riot, eventually leading to seven courts-martial. Blacks who tried to defend themselves were arrested, and a few soldiers gave their rifles to the mob. After two days, the National Guard did act to stop the violence, and hundreds more guardsmen were called in. Along with nine white people, 39 blacks were killed, though this number may not include those killed in burning homes and businesses or those tossed in the Mississippi River. Over a hundred were shot or maimed, and 5,000 blacks were driven from their homes. Daisy Westbrook, a resident of East St. Louis at the time, wrote the following on July 19th. July 19, 1917, Washington, D.C. Dearest Louise, was very glad to hear from you. Your letter was forwarded from what used to be my house. Louise, it was awful. I hardly know where to begin telling you about it. First, I will say, we lost everything but what we had on, and that was very little. Bungalow aprons, no hat, and sister did not have on any shoes. It started early in the afternoon. We kept receiving calls over the phone to pack our trunks and leave because it was going to be awful at night. We did not heed the calls, but sent Grandma and the baby on to St. Louis and said we would stick no matter what happened. At first, when the fire started, we stood on Broadway and watched it. As they neared our house, we went in and went to the basement. It was too late to run then. They shot and yelled something awful. Finally, they reached our house. At first, they did not bother us. We watched from the basement window. They remarked that white people live in that house. That is not a house. Later, someone must have tipped them off that it was a house. After leaving us for about 20 minutes, they returned and started shooting in the house, throwing bricks and yelling like mad, kill the burn that house. It seemed the whole house was falling in on us. Then someone said they must not be there. If they are, they are certainly dead. Then someone shouted, they're in the basement. Surround them and burn it down. Then they ran down our steps. Only prayer saved us. We were under tubs and anything we could find, praying and keeping as quiet as possible. Because if they had seen one face, we would have been shot or burned to death. When they were about to surround the house and burn it, we heard an awful noise and thought probably they were dynamiting the house. The Broadway theater fell in, we learned later. Sister tipped to the door to see if the house was on fire. She saw the reflection of a soldier on the front door, pulled it open quickly and called for help. All of us ran out then and were taken to City Hall for the night, just as we were. The next morning we learned our house was not burned, so we tried to get protection to go out and get our clothes and have the rest of the things put in storage. We could not, but were sent on to St. Louis. Had to walk across the bridge with a line of soldiers on each side. In the hot sun, no hats and scarcely no clothing. When we reached St. Louis, we tried to get someone to go to our house and get the things out, but were not successful. On Tuesday evening at 6 o'clock, our house was burned with two soldiers on guard, so the papers stated. We were told that they looted the house before burning it. We're in St. Louis now, trying to start all over again. Louise, it is so hard to think we had just gotten to the place where we could take care of our mother and grandmother well, and to think all was destroyed in one night. We had just bought some new furniture 
and I was preparing to go away and had bought some beautiful dresses. Most of my jewelry was lost also. I had on three rings, a watch bracelet, and lavalier. Everything else was lost. Nine rings, a watch, bracelet, brooch, locket, and some more things. I miss my piano more than anything else. The people here are very nice to us. Several of our friends have brought us clothing, bedclothes, etc. Tell me how you got in the government printing office. Do you take an examination? If so, what does it consist of? I might take it. I have a good position in East St. Louis, but don't know whether there will be enough children to teach there this fall or not. People are moving out so fast. The papers did not describe all the horrors. It was awful. People were being shot down and thrown back into the fire if they tried to escape. Some were shot and then burned. Others were dragged around with ropes about their necks. One man hung to a telegraph post. We saw two men shot down. One was almost in front of our house. One man and his wife, a storekeeper, were burned alive across in front of our house. I must close now. It makes me blue to talk about it. Write again. Tell Miss Black I received her card. Will you tell Florine and Mrs. Bowie I haven't their address? We'll expect to hear from you real soon. All send love. Lovingly, Daisy. In response to this and many incidents of racial violence that occurred throughout the country that year, the NAACP organized what is considered to be one of the earliest civil rights marches in the country. On July 28, 1917, Somewhere between eight and 15,000 black Americans marched down New York City's Fifth Avenue. Children led the parade, followed by women all dressed in white, and men wore black. They marched without speaking to the beat of muffled drums. The Reverend Charles Martin, secretary of the NAACP, admonished his brothers and sisters to march, quote, to make impossible the repetition of Waco, Memphis, and East St. Louis, by rousing the conscience of the country and bring the murders of our brothers, sisters, and innocent children to justice. And because, quote, we want our children to live in a better land and enjoy fairer conditions than have fallen to our lot. The letters read in this episode are printed in the Journal of Negro History, which is in the public domain and available at gutenberg.org. The letter from Daisy Westbrook was in the papers of Illinois Senator Lawrence Yates Sherman and was read with permission from the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library. The music was performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. Show notes are at AmericanEpistles.com and check the Pinterest page for images related to the series. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter, at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>